Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here. We're going to be speaking about what we can and cannot control. This program, this class, is in merit and honor of Rivka Batleya for a complete, speedy, and miraculous recovery and Rafur Shlema. My heart is together with her family as they're struggling now in difficult times. They asked me also to speak about how to hold strong, even when the cards are stacked against you, how to not give up. So that's also part of this topic that we will be addressing. Now, control, everybody wants control over their lives. Everybody either wants to have control or wants to take control because it doesn't feel very life-assuring, very comforting, a life where it is out of your control. But that word control is a very big word because there are things we can control and things we can't control. So to go straight, cut straight to the chase, the big challenge is, can we determine and know and distinguish what are the things we could control, what are the things we can't control, so we can invest our energies and focus and direct them toward things that we have a power over and not waste our time and energy on things we have no power over, where we're powerless, that we cannot change. What has become now a uh, well-known opening of the 12-step program, even for those that are not the 10 12-step programs, is the statement already coined in 1940 that we should have the, the strength I don't remember the exact expression, but basically it comes down to the strength, to the serenity to accept that which we cannot change, the strength and courage, the courage to do the things we can change, to change that which we can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's what we're going to be addressing. How does one know the difference? Because it's vital. So often, so often, more than we would like to believe. People determine, and they're subjective, even with good intentions, but with the subjectivity and the blind spots and prejudices, that we're going to try to do something, we'll put all our energy in it, and we will not give up and fight all the way. Only to find out, or maybe not to find out, but only to know objectively, those that see it objectively, that they've chosen the wrong battle. The area they're trying to change is not really in their power. And then what happens in in return is the areas they can work on, they're putting less focus or not enough focus or no focus at all. You know, there's the classic joke they tell. It's a chelem joke, but it's become part of recovery movement. Someone's looking for his keys that he lost at night. He's looking, looking. A neighbor comes by and says, can I help you? He says, sure. So let's retrace the steps, says the neighbor. Where did you lose the keys? So he points uh, uh, 20 yards away where the light is, with, with 20 yards away where the keys were lost. So he says, so why are you looking here? Because here's where the light is shining. The classic example that we look where it's easier, where it's comfortable. We don't always necessarily look where we should be looking. And there are many, many examples and then the case studies that demonstrate this point. 
So that's what we want to talk about. Of course, it touches upon the issue of control itself. You know, one of the hardest things in life is when you're dealing with a real challenge. And I'm talking about a challenge, even life and death challenge, dealing with the imminent loss of someone that you love, or some other serious matter, one of the hardest aspects of it is you feel you're out of control. You feel control was taken, taken away from you. And as adults, it's a very disconcerting thing because you want to feel that you control your destiny. And then suddenly something happens. It's not in your control. It's one of the big questions people say. What can I do? And part of it is accepting that you can't do anything anymore. You've done what you could. That doesn't mean we're powerless. It just means this is an area that you have to be wise enough to understand. Excuse me. Wise enough to understand that this is not the place that you should put in your effort to change. This doesn't mean surrender. It means realistic understanding and acceptance of certain realities. But as I said, how do you determine? Why shouldn't you keep fighting? And when do you stop fighting? So we're going to discuss all that and many other details in this conversation, which of course touches upon so many different nuances and case by case that it's difficult to really give a particularly tailored response because that's case by case. But I believe we could go through certain key principles that can help us all address this issue in our own personal lives or in the lives of our loved ones or people we advise or counsel and... um, Mentor. So, let's begin with the word control itself. Word control always bothered me because it's like a double-edged sword. On one hand, control sounds like the right thing. A person has self-control. For example, that's a virtue. A person has the ability to make decisions, that those decisions will have consequences for the good. That's a form of control. That you, it's in your hands. It's not taken away from you. On the other hand, control also has that negative implication that I'm being controlled by somebody. Control means like trying to force it, trying to impose your will over a certain situation. And if it's done in the wrong way, the same control that is considered a virtue can end up being a great liability. Let's take an example. I apologize, I have a slight cold. Example I'm going to use is parenting and children. Parenting. <coughs> oh boy. So in parenting, when children are very young, we are there to be their providers, their nurturers, their protectors. And yes, we have to be in control because children are naive, children are innocent and vulnerable, defenseless, and we need to be in control when we're either driving a car or walking or taking them somewhere. And the children depend upon us for that. But as the children grow older, or not even grow older, at what point, for example, do you suspend or restrain yourself from controlling? Let's say a child's beginning to try to walk. So you could say, you know, I don't want my child to fall. So just as I'm always there for them as a pillar, I'm going to hold my child. I'll hold him or her by the hand. That's not a healthy thing to do. You want to show them I'm here and walk toward me. But you want to restrain yourself and not be over-controlling or else, in a way, you clip their wings 
and not allow them to discover how to walk on their own. That's a simple example, an easy one for us to understand. But as they grow older, it becomes a real balancing act. How do you determine when you let children learn from their own mistakes, when you let them learn how to become friends, even how to disagree with siblings or friends or others, and when to give them direction, and even more than direction, rules and guidelines and strong rules. Nobody has mastered this art because it's the balance between growing up to be between the, the need to be an individual an independent, self-assured voice and with education and training not to make mistakes. So the answer there, how do we determine what is control, healthy control, and when is restraint necessary, is understanding that even when you restrain yourself, when you restrain yourself and you let the child grow or walk or develop on their own, that's also part of control. It's not that you're manipulating and controlling them, but that's also part of your controlling and helping them become independent individuals. So in other words, the key focus here is not that control is who you are. It's not about me winning. It's about me controlling life and its destiny or the life of others. It's about doing what is right. So when the role is necessary for a parent to be there and to take control because the situation may be a crisis or may be um, unguided and someone needs to direct and guide that's control not because you are in control but because that's what's required for the benefit and welfare of the individuals including the child when it's necessary for that child to be able to go to school or to summer camp or to make decisions of their own then a healthy form of your role is and that's also control but not control as I'm controlling but helping control the growth of the child by letting the child develop on his own or her own. So the key word here, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what's necessary. So then why do people so often err on the side of control freaks, over-controlling, dominating, imposing, suffocating? The list goes on. Is because they, have, they don't have the proper balance. They don't have a proper understanding what control is. And sometimes, and maybe the, I don't say the worst case scenario, but a worse scenario is when it's masking and it's a form of, of covering up and compensating for a lack of inner security. Very often people need to control a situation or control others is because they're not secure. You'll see people who are very secure are also very tolerant and letting other, and coexisting with others. Because you're secure. You don't need to exert your presence. You don't need to always say something. You don't always need to control it. Control is often a result of fear, of the lack of control. Fear that you will be undermined, that you will lose, that you will lose control, you will lose, that you won't be able to determine the destiny of your own situation out of fear. And that fear causes you to become over-controlling. And of course, that is nothing to do with what's good for the person or the situation. It's about you. It's very important to assess this in understanding yourself. Not an easy thing to do because it's very hard for a person to say, you know, I'm controlling because I'm uh, insecure or because I'm afraid. 
But if you want to grow, you need to address it and you need to speak to people who you trust and can help you assess that because you can end up hurting not just yourself, but others in this process. So to sum up in this context, control is the necessity in a world that is a hostile world, a world that is often filled with surprises and unknowns. It's important to navigate. You need a captain of the ship. The captain of the ship is in control of the ship. But you'll see a good captain knows how to delegate, knows how to rely on his different staff, and he also knows the ship, knows sometimes that the ship has to let to go, to go with the flow of the waves and not always fight and not always try to control every detail. And that also is part of the control, as I mentioned. So in life, yes, we need that, but the goal is, because that is necessary, to navigate the vicissitudes and the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life. So the first thing you need to assess is, is the control in your life coming from a healthy place, from an unhealthy place. The second thing, even if it's coming from a healthy place, do you have the proper balance? The proper balance between when to exert control, when to give orders, and when to exercise restraint. And those things can be worked on. Once you get a clear diagnosis, a clarity of where you stand, you can then work on it. If it's coming from an unhealthy place, okay, let's work on it. Let's figure out how else can you find ways to compensate for your security without having to control other people or to control the situation? How do you get the best of a team if you don't let them speak, if you don't let them be themselves? You often see people who are tyrants at work or in other scenarios, and some of them actually covered up very nicely, but at the end of the day, when it comes to them, they're tyrants. And they need to control everybody. And frankly, it's usually as a result of their own insecurity. Maybe control was taken away from them. Maybe they uh, are just fundamentally insecure for some reason, whatever reason. Because they're undermining their own business because you really want to hear sometimes a dissenting voice. You want to hear what your workers are saying. Maybe they'll come up with something that will improve your company and your business using that example and actually serve your interests. But the so-called fear of losing control can sometimes be so powerful, you can end up undermining yourself and being your own worst enemy. So that's the first thing, the assessment of healthy versus unhealthy control, and balance between control and restraint. Once we get beyond that, then comes the question of what can we control, what can we not control. Because I was saying before, that since the goal is the healthy welfare of the individual or individuals involved, so that means that even if you could control a person, like in the case holding your child's hand when they should be allowed to walk on their own, even if you could do it, it's not a healthy thing. But then there's another category of things that are completely impossible for us to control. It's out of our control. And that's something we have to learn to let go not let go, period, but let go of trying to control the situation, of trying to exert our will, on, impose our will on the situation or on the people involved. An example for that, and this takes me to, we'll talk a situation, in, for example, based on faith and prayer. 
So some people have the stereotype that if you have faith, it's like a crutch. It's blind faith. You don't do anything on your own. You just rely that God's going to save your life. That's actually a complete distortion of faith. People of faith also have faith that God blessed them with all the resources and all the tools and all the skills necessary to deal with the situation and not just wait for God to come save them. So it's about them doing whatever they possibly can do. But on the other end of it, there's a certain understanding, and it's a, a, frankly a brilliance, where you come to a point, I've tried everything I can do, and I can't do anything more. A type of release is saying, you know, I did what I can, I planted the seeds, I made my attempts, and now I hope that it will result in the, goal, in the objectives that I intended. And you let go. The same intensity that you have in committing and investing and doing something, that same intensity says now, I have to let go of this. If not, you start obsessing over something that you have no control over. The wisdom is knowing when to stop, when to fight, and when to stop. And I want to emphasize again, like I said before, when you stop fighting, it's not like you've given up and said, I did everything, I'm now resigned. No. It's also part of the process. Because the part of the process is sometimes you did your part, you planted the seed in the ground, and you don't see it immediately sprouting. Or you don't see it sprouting in a week or two. And let's say you're not aware of the nature, way the, way the, the, the natural, natural growth develops. So you say, you know what? Okay, too bad, I give up. No. Allow the process to take over. Let it emerge. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do You've watered it, you've nurtured it, you've planted it, you've sowed. And then things happen as a result of your efforts, but they're not now directly out of your effort because other forces and processes have to take over. That's how the concept of prayer, for instance, is understood. So when you pray for someone, as God forbid, in the hospital, and doctors have given up hope when they say the person is terminal and this is just a matter of time. And you firmly believe with all your strength that you want to fight and help this person recover. You want waiting for a miracle. So there's the there's the, the the realistic approaches. You do whatever you can. First of all, medically, of course, getting all the opinions, as well as spiritually, prayers and so on. But then there's a point where you say, and sometimes you need objective advice to tell you when. And you say, I I planted the seeds, and now it's God's turn. And sometimes God responds, and yes, something happens as a result of what you did. But not the direct control. You did your part, and then you had to let go. It's like, think of a marathon, a a relay race, a relay marathon. So you run your leg, then you pass the baton on. Had you not run your leg, the next leg cannot be run. So it's an accumulative process, and the maturity and the wisdom, and the humility necessary is that you don't have to run the whole race. The the book of Ethics of Fathers tells us, you don't have to finish the work, you have to do your part. And then the other parts will fill in and continue the process beyond you. Now you'll say, one second, sometimes it doesn't work out the way I want it. Yes, that's part of life. That doesn't mean that what you did doesn't have any value. Because it has value. I remember the famous story with Mrs. Waxman in Israel. Tragic story. So her son was uh, 
was captured by the enemy, by the Palestinians, PLO, I believe, and held for ransom at the, the style that they do. Israel, of course, does not negotiate with terrorists, so they figured out ways where he was, and, and usually they were able to capture the hostage without any, um, without any um, harm. But this time they came a minute late. And he was killed by the captors, tragically. Israel, before that, was all in prayer. Because Mrs. Waxman, very eloquent and, and a passion plea, the whole country was praying for her son. At the Kotel, at the Western Wall, prayers in the synagogues. And it was like a big thing, prayer, prayer. There came a point when this happened, so I don't even know how, an, how a, a, a journalist can be so abrasive, but he asked Mrs. Waxman, so what happened with all your prayers? You know, in a cynical way. What happened with all your prayers? The whole country's prayers. And she, in a, her dignified way, with aplomb, turned to him and said, we prayed, God listened, and God responded. And he said, no. It will not be the way we want it. Think of that. And this is not some line. It's a woman grieving over her lost son. It's the understanding that we did what we can and there are things we are, there's a mystery to life that is not in our understanding or control. And still believe the prayers were listened to and even God's response to no was also a response. That means somewhere the prayer had its effect but maybe not always the way we understand it. We don't know the script. We don't know the narrative. Maybe those prayers will be fulfilled a little while later, maybe in a different form, fashion. So this is a maturity of understanding what to do and do it all the way, faithfully, without even any hesitation, and knowing also when there are other forces at work. And I specifically use that. I don't want to use the word when to stop, when to resign, when to give up. That's not the point. It's when to stop your direct effort. Like I said before with the control, when you let your child walk, you're not abandoning your child. You haven't given up on your child. You're saying, I've done what I can, brought you here. Now I'm giving you the baton. And I know you can walk on your own. It'll take a few tries. You'll slip and fall a few times. That's also part of the process that you have facilitated. It's just two different stages in the facilitation. Stage one is where you're directly making an effort. You're planting the seed. Stage two is that you're waiting for the seed to sprout. You're waiting for the rains to come. And you continue doing your part, like a partnership. A partnership with each component, each partner doing his part or her part in the unfolding of the drama and getting the intended results. Now, all this emphasizes the point I made earlier. When you take the formula should be, not whether you can control it or you can't control it, not whether you have the power or you don't have the power, whether you should fight or not fight, what is best for the scenario, for the situation? Take yourself aside. Don't think of this as not a referendum on your capabilities. It's not a referendum on your ability to be in control or else who knows what. It's what is necessary to make this success. When you think of it that way, everything changes. Because then you say to yourself, you know, if I'm a teacher, I'll give another example. Teaching students. And the teacher, of course, espouses and presents an idea, explains it, elucidates, beautiful. 
Students are taking notes, they're listening, absorbing. At some point, a good teacher turns to the students and says, okay, I'd like to hear, do you have any questions? Or I'd like you to make a presentation. What did you hear today? Do your homework, do some research, come back. Now the student begins to speak and the teacher says immediately, you know, the student is, is, is um, spouting nonsense. Or see that's completely not living up to the, to the message or the idea that was taught. What will a good teacher do? He'll start berating the student? Of course not. What he'll do is listen and point out some things and help the student grow. If you want the student to stand on his own feet or her own feet, you can't just sit, take on control. I'm the teacher. So often you see this. I know I'm the master. And they don't have the exercise, the restraint necessary to help others become masters. And there's restraint, there's patience, allowing the person to find their voice. Sometimes you have to tolerate things that are very grating because you see how they present it or how they say it may not be exactly in the spirit of what you want to say. But you guide the person, you help build their confidence, and you help them find their voice in expressing it. Those are the best, the excellent teachers. The teachers that forever you remember because they put you on your own feet. They taught you methodology. And they taught you how you, not they, you're not an extension of them. You sparked and ignited their soul, their voice, their intelligence. This requires a balance because you can also have the other extreme. A teacher in the name of autonomy and the name of creating independent voices doesn't say much. Says one line, take it up. What could happen? They're not having guidance. You need the guidance. You need the direction of the master. So that balancing act is an art that takes a long time to master. Maybe we never master it. But it is a balancing act. And the key focus again is not how smart the teacher is and how much I'm going to show you that you're stupid or you're not as smart as I am, which again is another insecurity masking. It's another form of control masking your insecurity. But you really care for the student. You really care for the recipient. And as such, you know when to hold back enough for them to be able to emerge and also when to give so they have enough to work with. That give and take, that give and take. But the focus is not on you. The focus is on the benefit of the transmission, the benefit of whatever is happening. And the same applies to the general concept of what we control and what we cannot control. It's not just the things that we cannot control because beyond us. It's recognizing the fact that it's beyond us means that it's also part of your life reality. And just as you know, here's what I have to do, you also know what you're not supposed to do. So in training somebody, you don't just train them, here are the skills, here are the best practices, you also tell them what are the bad practices. What are the things you shouldn't even try to do? Let someone else do that. The art of delegation again. Don't try to be your own lawyer. Hire a lawyer. Don't try to be your own accountant. Sometimes you need someone else, someone who's an expert in that area. Is that giving up means that you're not perfect? It's saying for something to really be good, everyone has to do their role. On the contrary, people who know how to build such teams are the most secure and confident ones and the ones that build the greatest operations and institutions. Say, one second, here's a person who's doing it all by himself. Okay, good luck. He may be able to do the work of 20 people, but only 20, not 30. 
And he won't do everything excellent because no one is excellent at everything. But above all, it's not for the benefit of the cause. The benefit of the cause, you do want to have that type of synergy, that team effort, the different perspectives. So when you look at life that way, the same is with life. If you appoint for yourself a mentor, and you designate for yourself a friend, and you turn to them in times of advice, counsel, direction, even sometimes you really want their strong opinion, sometimes going to authority, that's part of your control, giving up the control in order to get what you need to get to achieve, that you shouldn't be in your own way of trying to dominate or impose and so on. So when you think of it that way, even if you do have insecurity, and who doesn't to some extent, you say to yourself, you know what, I may feel I want to control, but you know, for the benefit of my own benefit, the benefit of the cause, the benefit of the people involved, it's actually good that I can delegate or I can say, you know what, this is an area I cannot control. And sleep peacefully with that. Not because you come to realize only because... Not only because you've come to realize it's an area that you can't do anything about anyway, but because that itself, that you can't do anything about it, means that you don't need to do anything about it. And it will work itself out. This is particularly particularly acute when it comes to relationships. That's where it plays itself out in a very serious way. Okay? Scenario. Two people dating. Okay? And they start liking each other. So, of course, control issues come in. You know, no one wants to be vulnerable. You want to be in control of the relationship. But the problem is there's another person. So that's where you'll have manipulation and you'll have subtle manipulation and all kinds of tactics of trying to be one step ahead, like at a chess game, play mind games. What do you end up doing? You know, the relationship is not going to thrive it's not going to flourish in those circumstances because relationship by definition means relationship. It's relations of two people. And you cannot predict or control or demand or, de- or decide what the other person is going to do. So you'll say, one second, that's very scary. That's very frightening. It means I may fall in love with someone. I'll be vulnerable. I'll be open. And I can get hurt because that person may not reciprocate. So what do people often do, especially when they have insecurities and control issues? They try to control it. They control it either sometimes playing hard to get, passive-aggressive behavior. I'm not going to go through the whole tool chest and arsenal that people use with their armor simply to gain control or to hold on control. Sometimes people will literally become cold, not because they want to be cold, not because they are naturally cold, but because they want to show. I'm tough, I'm strong. All this is masking other stuff, as we can understand. <laughs> so what's the alternative? The alternative is, my friends, is recognizing that a true, healthy, loving relationship is two individuals choose to be with each other. And yes, that means being vulnerable. That means, yes, having some unknowns. But knowing that that's the beauty of a relationship. Like they say, let the bird go. Don't try to control the bird and see if she comes back to you or he comes back to you. It's very hard to do because the nature of a person is, especially in an insecure world, is to not let go. Maybe let go with uh, strings attached. No pun intended, literally. Long string, long rope. 
long chain. <coughs> That's the nature of who we are, for whatever reasons. But it's not necessarily the relation nature of a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship is being able to celebrate your vulnerability. You hear that? Celebrate your vulnerability. Not just tolerate it. Not just say it's a necessary evil because it comes with the turf. Celebrate it. Because part of life is realizing you do your part and then there's another person who will do their part and you can't, don't want to control it and really can't control it and shouldn't, want to, shouldn't control it even if you could control it. Because the love that comes from another person that is not manipulated, that's not demanded, is true love. Then you know the person really at their own volition chose to be with you. Not because of fear, not because you've blackmailed them in some way or because they're afraid they're going to lose the security or other things that you're providing. Now I'm not saying this is easy because it's emotional. It's not just a logical thing. It's emotional. But think about it. If you want a healthy relationship, this lies at the heart of it. Understanding the things that you control is how you're going to behave. And even there, there are times you need to exercise restraint and respect to the other. Which is the, sta- the constant concept of any dance, which is as uh, one of the expressions I use in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. When you're close, when you should be distant, you'll be distant when you should be close. What does that mean? In a relationship, any healthy relationship requires closeness, intimacy, a real commonality, and love, and nurturing. But there's also respect for boundaries. It's two different people. Like they say, love, circle, circle. Not one swallows up or annihilates the other. They join. They join. Like the rungs of a chain. And then they become stronger because you have not just two individuals, now you have two individuals joining. And that requires humility. It requires, again, focusing on what is right for the person, for the people, for the relationship. It always comes down to that. And then, even if you have an inclination to want to control something, you second-guess yourself, you stop yourself, you exercise restraint. Not always easy to do. Very difficult at times. Especially if you think the worst. And you think the other person is going to make a big mistake. But... Think of the reward at the end when the person actually makes the choice at their own volition. Then you have a real relationship. And this is something that can be talked about. This is not a game. You could speak about it with someone you love. You could speak about where are the boundaries. Where do we try to influence the other or, or inspire or persuade? And when do we exercise restraint? It's excellent to have a conversation like that. Because different people have different needs. Everybody's space is different. So you see that this concept is far deeper than just where to let go and where not to let go. It's the whole dynamic. Sometimes in the Kabbalistic and the Hasidic terminology for this, I've spoken about this a number of times, the Ratzei Veshuv in the vision of Ezekiel. Ratzei Veshuv means to run and return. That the healthy balance is a to and fro, a dual movement. Positive, negative. Contraction, expansion of the heart. Exhale, inhale. You'll see energy itself, the very fibers of life itself, pulsate 
Everything is pulsating. What is the pulse? In and out. Transmitting, returning. Tension, resolution. So in the context of control, it's the same idea. You do your part, and then you have to somewhat let go. And that's also part of the process. And then you return. Each case needs to be determined where we stand and, and what's necessary. Sometimes people have not made enough effort, so they have to add more effort. Sometimes they've made enough effort and they have to know how to let go and not over, over, can you say over effort, over exert. And this is the formula of real success in everything in life. Then you also realize that you've done your part. There's a certain peace. Imagine the, the calmness, the peace of mind, the peace of heart. When you know, I've done my thing, I can't do more now. When you know when to distinguish where to focus your energies and where not to focus your energies. And it's always good, again, to have an objective third-party opinion. Well, I say third-party if this to a couple, or a second person's opinion, because they can give you a certain objectivity and light and clarity that's sometimes very hard to see on your own, especially in emotional situations where you don't know, should I be making an attempt or should I just wait? Now, of course, it's an emergency situation. You can't suddenly start calling everybody. So you have to follow your instincts, and hopefully if you train yourself properly, your instincts will, will not, uh, they will not um, let you down, and they will achieve the intended results. <clears throat> so health is a pulse. Health is a control and non-control thing. The Ratzav Yeshuv I mentioned in the Hebrew has another, there's another expression based on the Zohar, Kabbalistic work is called moti v'loi moti. Moti is a word in uh, Aramaic which means to touch, to arrive. And loi moti means to not touch, to return. It's a much more subtle form of the pulse of Ratzav the pulse of actually two movements. In this case, we're not talking about a pulse, we're talking here about just to touch and not to touch. You'll see many beautiful things in life, like the, str- the humming of a, of, um, of, a, of a violin, the strumming, I should say, of a violin, the strings of a violin. It's that perfect touch, not too aggressive, not too light. It's a light touch. You'll see in ice skating, many places you'll see that. The perfection is that subtlety. So the same is in this case. Control, the healthiest forms of control. I remember once reading... Well, let me finish my sentence. The healthiest form of control is not grabbing it. It's, it's, it's touching it enough that you can direct it in the right way. Now, sometimes, yes, there's certain things you do need to grab the bull by the horns and do something. But very many areas of life where we make much more mistakes is the subtle. Like I mentioned before with a child. What is a caress with a child? You try to hug a child in love, you could also suffocate the child, God forbid. A hug, a kiss is a slight touch. But that slight touch sends electricity running through you. Whereas if you touch too heavily, too strongly, it won't happen. You don't touch at all, there's also nothing happening. So that subtlety is a type of touch and not touch all the time. And you'll see those that have that fine-tuned approach, whether it's in art, in music, in writing, in communicating, 
they're like, like, like a scalpel of a surgeon, know exactly how to do it without going too deep, without going too shallow. And this, especially in the context of love and relationship and intimacy, is extremely vital. Those that have the ability to dance that way, the, the dual movement, the touch-not-touch, touch, are able to have that control-not-control control at the same time. So in a deeper form, this is really affects everything, the whole cosmic order. Wherever you turn, you always need this type of relationship. As soon as there's a relationship between two things, how do you avoid domination of one force over another, at the same time get the benefit of that force? The proper boundaries, the proper give and take. <clears throat> when you have a cold like, like I do, there's an imbalance, as you can tell. Just connecting everything. So, so when we talk about this topic, it has so many implications in so many different areas of life. And I hope that what I've shared can really be used by anybody in any particular way, customizing it to your particular situation. But it really comes down to the key points that I made. Was first determining whether you have healthy control, unhealthy control. I should also add to that not in control at all. Some people, their lives are not in control at all. Someone else is controlling their life or something, or not just someone else, something else. That's called an addiction. Where you're enslaved to another or to an object or to an action or to a substance. These are forces that, so that needs to be determined. Then needs to be determined where the areas that you should be putting effort and where not. And always keep in mind, what is the good of the cause? What is the best benefit for the intended objective? And that's what determines how much to push, how much to go back, how much to exert, how much to restrain. And that's how it works. I remember once reading about um, those that silkworms. So the silk, to draw silk out of a silkworm is a very, very subtle act because silk is very, very fragile, and um, the key, if I recall correctly, was not just trying to pull it out. You ever see you just try to pull a string out, you just tear the whole thing. But it's a subtle approach where you're just putting enough pressure just to pull it out. And it's really an, an, an art form that takes years to develop. And I'm sure there are other examples. You know, to make this a, a mutually a type of uh, interactive program, if anybody has other examples in science, in nature, in the human body, anywhere, where you have that need to exert some type of pressure, yes, you need to touch, but also the touch is like almost like in a non-touching way or non-intrusive way, not aggressive way. So if you have any examples, just email them to us at MeaningfulLife.com. We really appreciate it. So I want to say a few more words about, I mentioned it before, but how to keep fighting, even when the cards are stacked against you. So I really said what I wanted to say, but I want to repeat it in the context of people dedicating this program, the Rafur Shlema for uh, Rivka Batleya. That is, God's mysterious ways we don't know. We have to always do our part, medically, emotionally, psychologically, including prayer, including our spiritual activities, we do our part. When you do that faithfully and committed, 
there's no question, there's another partner, God, that can do and hopefully will do as we would like him to do. But you have to know that that partner you have to trust. The, tr- the trust is important here. The trust is because God is the one that gives life. And if anybody wants to preserve life, it's God himself. So that's why we don't give up, even when the stack- cards are stacked against us. Because whether we end up getting what we wanted or the way we wanted it is not the issue as much as that you did your faithful part for the good of the person. That's the end of the day, the, story, the real key. And that's how we, we don't get resigned, even when things seem very difficult and seems like hopeless. That word hopeless is not acceptable. It's hope in one form or another. It may work out exactly as we would like, and that's great, we can celebrate. Sometimes it doesn't work out exactly as we like, sometimes very different than what we want intended. But it, at the end of the day, the testimony to human dignity, both of Rivka Batleya and her family, is that you did your part in this lifetime, in this world, with your family, to fight on, to be strong. And that does not die. Because that lives on both in the spiritual way, but also lives on as a legacy, as inspiration to all those that see it, both family and others. And it's very important to know this, especially in trying times. Death is a loss of control in many ways. I remember experiencing it when my father passed away. But at the same time, I've become a stronger person as a result. Because not everything is in my control. Who says you control everything? And it's perfectly fine. Not only perfectly fine, it actually can be a source of strength recognizing I have my role. There's things that are not my role. I'm not God. I don't know the bigger narrative. I don't know the bigger plan. And why should we try to write the script? We have a script writer, a screenwriter, who put the whole thing in place in the first place, long before we were around. So whatever we have was presented to us. Obviously, if there'd be no life, there'd be no life, there'd be no death. If there was no creation of existence, there'd be no sorrow. So there's a deeper story, which we, some, we understand little pieces of, perhaps, little specks, the whole picture. But that's not a, a statement of weakness or resignation or, or uh, giving up. It's a statement of truth, of recognizing that there's a vast picture, much larger than any of us can ever grasp. So when scientists who study the cosmos and are brilliant say, as much as I know, I realize the mystery of what I don't know, and all of it is a mystery, they're not giving up. That's part of the poetry. That's the music. That's the capturing that there's something far greater than the ego, and it's not all about you and me, and our comfort zones, and therefore our control zones. Understanding that gives a person a lot of inner peace. You don't have to own everything. There are things that emerge. There are things that will emerge. There's a bigger picture. So with that, I want to wish Rivka Batleya this miraculous reforged Shlema. Give her family should have strength. All of you, wherever you are listening to this and hearing this or watching it, and it's all downloadable by podcast. I should make that announcement as well. Please be blessed with the strength to deal with any challenge and realize that you're put in a situation that means you have the power to do something about it. 
be wise in figuring out where that power is and in what direction, and where which direction you should be focusing that power. That's the key. And with that, we will sum up and conclude this week's episode or program. And we're here every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Live, and then it's all archived and downloadable. We welcome your comments. We welcome your feedback. Please share. We post all this on social media. And you can pose your questions, comments, and all your feedback is extremely welcomed at MeaningfulLife.com. Everyone be blessed. It should be a very healthy and loving and powerful week. So until next Wednesday, be well.